0: The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, for many people, as soon as they hear those words, they start feeling feelings of fear. They start feeling feelings of nervousness. They start feeling feelings of anxiety and intimidation because let's just be honest about it this morning. The book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the Bible. It is one of the most difficult books to understand in the Bible. It is a difficult book to read and to study because it doesn't read like other books in the New Testament. It doesn't read like the Gospels. It doesn't read like Acts or even the epistles of Paul, you see, because Revelation doesn't read like the other books of the New Testament for many people, they just they just stay away from it. They just avoid it like the plague. Whenever they get to the book and a daily Bible reading schedule, they immediately make a spiritual U-turn and they go back to, to more familiar territory to them in the Bible. For a lot of people, they allow their fears of revelation to prevent them from reading and seriously considering what it has to say. But beginning in a few days from now here in this place, we're going to strive to be different. We're going to strive to have a a different mindset, you see, because revelation is in the canon of Scripture because it is inspired of God, because it comes from the mind of God. in a few days here in this place, not only will we begin reading the book, but we're also going to strive to understand it. We're also going to strive to to comprehend it. We're also going to strive to glean appropriate lessons from it. We are not going to run and hide from it. We are not going to shudder in fear of it. We're not going to act as though the book is not important because it reads differently than other books in the New Testament. No, instead of doing those kind of things, we're going to conclude this year by tackling this book. We're going to take this book head on. We're going to understand that this book is important to God and he has put it in the Bible for a reason. We're going to read the book of Revelation to close out 2020. And so please take out your Bibles, and I want you to go to Revelation chapter 1. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 1 to prepare us to prepare us for this Bible reading of Revelation that we're going to engage in in a few, in a few days. In this particular lesson this morning, I want to give you a few helpful tips that will hopefully help you navigate your way through the book. You know, it is interesting to me how when you read the first chapter of the book of Revelation, it almost seems like God anticipated that a lot of people would go to this book and totally misunderstand it. Totally misapply it, totally take it down a path that he doesn't want it to go down. When you read the first chapter of Revelation, it almost seems like God anticipates that this would be a very abused book. And so to keep us from doing that, to keep us from abusing the book, to keep us from misusing the book, to keep us from unlocking erroneous and just wrong doors to the book In Revelation chapter one, God gives us some keys He gives us some keys to the book of Revelation. In fact, he gives us seven seven specific keys to, to properly unlock the mysteries that are found in it. And here's the first key right here. The first key to properly unlocking the mysteries to the door of Revelation is found in the name of the book. The name of the book, the name of this book, Is revelation. It's called revelation, right? You see the name of this book, Revelation, the name of this book actually comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, our English word apocalypse is actually derived from this Greek word. Many of you know that our English word apocalypse has come to mean disaster. It's come to mean catastrophe, destruction, the end of the world. Many of you know that that is what our English word apocalypse has generally come to mean, but I want to suggest to you that that is not what the Greek word apocalypsis means. You see, unlike the English word apocalypse, which means Destruction, disaster, catastrophe, the end of the world. The Greek word apocalypsis means to uncover. It means to disclose. It means to reveal. In fact, in the very first sentence of the very first verse of this book, we see exactly what this book is going to reveal. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 1. We're going to be mainly in Revelation 1 this morning. Revelation 1. What does it say? The revelation of what? The revelation of Jesus Christ the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants notice how right away we see that the title of this book is very appropriate it is a revelation in fact it is a revelation of one specific person John says that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ It is a revelation of the Son of God it is a revelation of the kingship of the Son of God it is a revelation of the glory of the Son of God and the majesty of the Son of God and the ability of the Son of God to lead his people to victory over their enemies this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ that's the first key that we must have if we're going to unlock the mysteries found in Revelation the first key to this book is found in the name, and then we come to the second key, and the second key has to do with the content. The content. What is the content of this book? Well, When you read several verses in it, you see very clearly that this book's content is that of prophecy. This is a prophetic book. In fact, it is the only prophetic book of the New Testament. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 3. Revelation one in verse three says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, the prophecy, and he the things that are written in it. Notice how the book begins, but trying to get us to understand that this is going to be a prophetic book. This is a book of prophecy. Now go to the last chapter of the book, Revelation 22. I want you to notice how this book ends the same way it begins. It begins by telling us that it's a book of prophecy. And then in Revelation 22 and verse 7, Jesus says, And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who reads the words of the prophecy of this book. Look at verse number 10 of the same chapter. In verse 10, he said to me, an angel said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy prophecy of this book. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Notice how over and over again God is trying to get us to understand something. Over and over again God is trying to get us to understand that this is a prophetic book. This is a book of prophecy. When we say that this is a book of prophecy, we mean that in addition to containing commandments and requirements for the people of God to submit to, this book also contains prophecies, foretelling of future events from the perspective of the original audience, these early Christians. This is a prophetic book. This book is very similar to the major and minor prophet books of the Old Testament. It is a book of prophecy, and it is also a book of symbols. It is also a book of all kinds of symbolism. That is the style of the book. Go back to the first verse of the book, Revelation 1 and verse 1. Revelation 1 and verse 1. The Bible says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent it, and my translation says, and communicated it by, but your translation may say some even better. It may say, and signified it by his angel to his bondservant John. Notice that language, signified. You see, right away, as this book opens up, in the first verse, John wants us to understand that this book is not going to read like other books in the New Testament. It's not going to read like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not going to read like Acts. It's not going to read like 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Jude. No, unlike those books, this book is signified. It is written in signs and symbols and figures. It is loaded with all kinds of symbolism. That's what John tells us right away, and we find a great example of that in the verses that Brother John read for us this morning in our scripture reading. Go back and look at those verses. Revelation 1, 12 through 20. Are you there? I want you to notice how in those verses Brother John read for us this morning, Jesus Jesus is described for us in a very interesting way. He is depicted for us in a very interesting way. He is depicted as having hair like wool and white as snow. He is depicted as having eyes like a flame of fire and a voice like the sound of many waters. He's even depicted as having a face shining like the sun and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's how Jesus is described in those verses, and we need to understand that none of that, absolutely none of that, is to be taken literal. None of that is to be taken in a literal way. Instead, all of it is figurative. It's symbolism. It is language that is signified. Jesus does not literally have a sword coming out of his mouth. He doesn't literally have eyes like a a flame of fire. He doesn't literally have hair as white as snow. All of that language you see there is just signs and symbols being used to describe Jesus in a very powerful and dramatic way. It's apocalyptic language. It is symbolic language. In fact, when it comes to the symbolic language that is found all throughout this book, we need to understand that it is often the case that that kind of language is clearly explained to us. For example, when it comes to the seven golden lampstands that are mentioned in verse number 12 of chapter 1, And when it comes to the seven stars that are mentioned in verse number 16, notice how both of those things are clearly explained to us in verse number 20. Do you see that? Notice how according to verse number 20, the seven stars represent what? Seven angels. And the seven lampstands represent seven churches. Both of those symbols are explained to us in that verse. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to ponder. We don't have to debate the matter. Sometimes the symbols in this book are clearly interpreted and explained, and other times they are not. But someone may have this question. Someone may wonder, well, Sean, why in the world did God even choose to have a book written in this kind of way? Why in the world did God choose to write a book or have a book written and in symbolism and in a signified way in signs and symbols and figures? Why couldn't he just have this book written like the book of Acts or the or the Gospels or maybe the book of Romans or First Corinthians? Why did God have to have this book written in this confusing way to us? Well, let me say a couple of things about that. First, let me say this. Because God is God, because God is sovereign, because God is the Lord, because God is the creator. He can reveal his will to man in any way that he desires. He doesn't have to reveal his will to us at all. But if he chooses to, he certainly can choose to do so like this. He certainly can choose to do it in a signified way. Who are we to question how God decides to reveal his will to mankind? Because God is God, he can reveal his will And this kind of genre. In fact, when it comes to this kind of genre, when it comes to this kind of style, we need to understand that this style is really not uncommon when you compare it to other books of the Bible. It's really not uncommon when you compare it to other books of the Old Testament. I mean, you just go home today and spend some time doing a casual reading of the book of Isaiah. In the book of Zechariah, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Joel, and you spend some time reading some of the uninspired literature that was written between the Testaments, the Apocrypha writings, as they are called today, you go home and you just spend some time reading that kind of stuff, and you'll easily see that this kind of style, this kind of apocalyptic style, was constantly used in ancient times. It was used over and over again. It was a well-known genre of, that many of the prophets would use to talk about pending judgment that will come upon the enemies of God's people. You see, just like you might communicate through poetry to tell somebody you love them, just like you might write a poem to be romantic towards your spouse. If you were a prophet during this time, and you wanted to communicate a message of God being powerful and capable enough to bring down the enemies of his people, a book loaded with dramatic signs and symbols and figures was the perfect way to communicate that message. It was the perfect genre to get that message across to your primary targeted audience. In fact, when it comes to the primary targeted audience of this book, When it comes to the original audience of this book, we need to understand that the original recipients of this book were seven churches. They were seven churches of Asia. When we say Asia, we're not talking about China and Japan. We're talking about Asia Minor, Turkey today. I want you to go back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse number 4. Revelation 1 and verse 4. John says to the seven churches. I'm writing to the seven churches. To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits or who are before his throne. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11. In case we missed it the first time, John is told to write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The primary targeted audience were the seven churches of Asia. That was the original audience. Seven churches in Asia Minor. These seven churches that are listed in verse number 11 were seven local churches of Christ in the first century. They were seven churches that Jesus personally is going to address in chapters 2 through 3. They are seven churches who were in the hot zone of a terrible wave of persecution going against Christians during this time. I want you to go back to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse number 9. Revelation 1 and verse 9. John, as he writes to the seven churches, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the what? In the tribulation." And kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God. He's exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice how in addition to telling us how the kingdom of God was in existence in the first century and John was was part of it, he also says the kingdom of God was going through tribulation. Tribulation is taking place against the kingdom of God at this time. Go to Revelation 2. Look at verse 10. Or Revelation 2, verse 9, I'm sorry, 9 and 10. As Jesus speaks to the church at Smyrna, Revelation 2, verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. They were poor physically, but rich spiritually. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. They're suffering. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. So that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days for a complete amount of time be faithful until death the idea there is be faithful even if it means you got to give your life for the cause be faithful even if it means you have to die for me and i'll give you the crown of life verse 13. i know where you dwell this is the church at pergamon jesus talking to the church at pergamon i know where you dwell where satan's throne is they're in the hot zone of persecution And you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. He was killed where Satan dwells. You see the point? Notice how when it comes to John's original first century audience, they were going through a rough time. They were going through a rough time. I mean, we may think... We're going through a rough time with this COVID stuff, and we are, but I promise you, no matter how bad we may think this is, it doesn't begin to compare to what these Christians were going through 2,000 years ago. In the first century, during the time of these Christians, they weren't battling COVID. They were battling persecution. They were experiencing tribulation. In fact, it is very likely that they were experiencing Tribulation by the hands of the government, the Roman government. You see, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their unwillingness to bow down to the emperor as a god, many of these Christians were being taken from their families. They were losing their jobs. They were being thrown in prison, and some of them were even being killed. Jesus says that Antipas, a Christian named Antipas, had been murdered for the cause of the gospel. The Bible says that these early Christians were going through an extreme level of tribulation in the time of the first century, and any interpretation of this book that disregards that is a faulty interpretation. I'm going to say that again for the sake of emphasis. Any interpretation of this book that disregards the background and the tribulation that these early Christians were facing is a faulty interpretation. It cannot be right. You see, contrary to what a lot of folks may suggest today, this book is not about stuff going on in our world today. This book is not about what's going on in the Middle East. It's not about Putin. It's not about Kim Jong-un. It's not about COVID or even about what's going to happen when the world comes to an end. No, all this stuff was to be designed to encourage these these Christians first. Putin and Kim Jong-un and COVID is not going to encourage Christians who in the first century were getting their heads cut off by the Roman government. That's not going to encourage them to stay faithful to God during a time when they're, they're trying to be wiped out by a world empire. You see, before gleaning lessons from this book that can help us today, we need to remember that this book was first written to first century Christians. It was first written to Christians who were being persecuted by a world empire. It was first designed to encourage them and motivate them to hang in there, to stay faithful to God, even if it cost them their lives, like it did in the case of Antipas. The fifth key to understanding and unlocking the mysteries of this book is found in the background. The tribulation of the early saints, but then... We come to the sixth key to unlocking the mysteries of this book and this sixth key may be the most neglected and controversial of all the keys. It's the time key. When was the majority of the stuff mentioned in this book going to come to pass? Well, God tries to tell us this over and over again in the book. And let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse number 3. I think God knows how to tell time. I think God knows how to communicate time to his people. And so look at what God says in Revelation 1 and verse 3. Revelation 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and hear the, he the things which are written in it for the time. The time is what? The time ain't 2,000 years later. The time is near. It's near. Look at verse number 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must what? They got to soon take place. And he sent it and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John. I think if God wanted to tell his people about something that was going to soon take place, he may have would have said it like that. He might have would have said, it's going to soon take place. Revelation 22 and verse 6. Revelation 22 and verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, and his angel to show his bondservants the things which must what? They got to soon take place. Verse number seven, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Verse number 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. God is trying to get it immersed in our heads. What's going on here? The time factor. The time factor. This book is not talking about stuff that's going to happen way, way, way down the line. It's not talking about stuff that's going to happen 2,000 years later. Instead, it's talking about stuff that's going to take place soon. It's going to be near. It's going to take place shortly from the time perspective of the original audience. That's what John is telling us over and over again and we would be wise to remember that. As we read this book over the next few weeks, regardless of how we interpret different things, we need to understand that the things that are mentioned in it, the majority of things mentioned in this book, Armageddon, the 6, six beast, the doom of Babylon, all that stuff, God says over and over again was going to take place soon. The time was near from the perspective of the original audience. But then, we come to the final key, and that's the theme of the book. What is the book all about? Well, the theme of the book is Christ rules. Christ rules and protects his people. Christ rules and reigns in his church. Christ rules and he leads his people to victory over their enemies. Revelation chapter 1 again. Revelation 1, verse 5. Revelation 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn, and the word firstborn here is being used in the same way as used in the Old Testament to talk about the preeminent one. The firstborn, the preeminent one of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Notice how Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's a shot at the Roman Empire. Jesus is the one really in control, not the emperor. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us to be a kingdom. We're a kingdom if we're members of the church. Priest to his God and follow to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, 14, Revelation 17 and verse 14, it says, these will wage war against the lamb. Who is the these? The these, they are the people mentioned in the previous verses. I believe a reference to those who were henchmen of Satan, those who were part of the evil and corrupt, idolatrous Roman Empire. They're going to wage war against the lamb. But the lamb is going to overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. I'm going to tell you that out of all the verses in Revelation, this one's my favorite verse. It's My favorite verse. I like this verse because I believe it's the thesis for the book. I believe this is the theme verse for the book. This verse tells us. This verse tells us what Revelation is all about. It tells us that even though a lot of bad stuff was happening to the people of God in the first century, their enemies would not prevail. They would not be victorious. They would not destroy and stop out the kingdom of God. Even though on the surface it appeared like God's people were losing this battle. From God's perspective, in the end, he knew they were going to win. They were going to be reigning as victors over their enemies because they had the right person fighting for them. They had Jesus fighting for them. They had Jesus leading the army. You see, throughout this book, and watch for it, Jesus is portrayed as a great king. He's portrayed as a great conqueror. He's portrayed as someone who's always leading his people to victory over their enemies. It doesn't matter if it's death. Hades, the two beasts, the people worshiping the beast, the red dragon, those who worship and serve the dragon. It doesn't matter what enemies pop up in this book, and there are a lot of them, but the point is still the same. Jesus picks them off one by one. Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. Jesus rules over his people, the church, forever. These are seven keys unlocking the mysteries of Revelation but before we close let's answer one more question and that question is okay so what what can we learn from this what are some practical lessons that we can take away from Revelation even though we were not part of the seven churches of Asia Well, I want to give you two lessons two things to take home with you this morning that I hope will encourage you from Revelation one lesson that we learn from Revelation is this. One lesson we can take away from this book is we have an enemy. We got an enemy. And the enemy we have is the same enemy that the Christians 2,000 years ago had. It's the same enemy that the seven churches of Asia had. Just like the early brethren in the first century Our enemy today is also the same one mentioned in Revelation 12. It's also the red dragon. It's also the serpent of old. It's also Satan, the devil, the evil one. As you read through the book of Revelation in the next few days, please, please, please don't lose sight of the devil, okay? Don't lose sight of the fact that while Rome is portrayed as persecuting the Lord's church, Rome is nothing more than a pun. Rome is nothing more than a tool being used by the devil. Rome is not the main enemy in this book. The devil is the main enemy in this book. He is the main one. Leading this great effort to try to destroy the Lord's church. He's the main opponent of God's people 2,000 years ago, and he's also the main opponent of God's people today. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, he says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Notice how Peter says that contrary to what a lot of folks may suggest today, the devil is not some made-up imaginary character. He's not like Peter Pan or the tooth fairy. Instead, he's real. He is a real spiritual being and he's constantly after us. He's constantly trying to assault us every single day. He's constantly watching us. He's thinking about us. He's studying us. He's trying to put pitfalls in front of us because he wants to trip us up and he hates God and he wants to hurt God in the worst possible way by stealing us away from God. That's what he's all about. We need to recognize that. Peter says that Satan is our enemy. We learn that from Revelation, but not only do we learn that we have an enemy from this book, another lesson we learn is we also have an advocate. We have an advocate, and our advocate is the same one that the early Christians had. It's Jesus Christ. Don't think Jesus is sitting in heaven doing nothing right now. No, Jesus is busy. He's still active. He's still reigning over his church. He's still in full control of everything. He is still the spiritual general who will ultimately lead the people of God to victory over all of our enemies. While it might appear that this world is completely falling apart, and it feels that way. While it might appear that we're losing this battle, while it might appear that we're outnumbered and we don't stand a chance in this wicked world, while it may appear that way, the great thing about Revelation is Revelation tells us ultimately how this battle is going to end. Revelation gives us the DVR version to this spiritual battle. It tells us that no matter how wicked and sinful this world gets that we live in, in the end. Jesus will win he will be victorious he will prevail his cause will prevail his church will prevail While it may be difficult to try to figure out everything this book is saying and it is difficult one thing that is not difficult to figure out is the main point of the book and the main point is Jesus wins Jesus is going to win this great spiritual battle that's being waged. The question is, which side of the battle are you on? Whose army are you in this morning? Are you on the winning side of this spiritual battle? Or are you on the losing side? If you're on the losing side this morning, you can change that. You can get on the winning side, just like that. If you believe in Jesus and confess that and turn away from your sins... And obey his commandment to be immersed in the waters of baptism. Jesus will take away your sins. He will wash you clean, uh, add you to his kingdom, his church, and you will be on the side of this spiritual battle that you need to be on, the side of Jesus, the side that will be victorious when this world is no more. So there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the glorious gospel of King Jesus Christ. We're going to invite you to come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing together.